A person's a person, no matter how small. Amen. <laughs> you may remember this line from the great Dr. Seuss book, which, came, which later became a movie, Horton Hears a Who. Theodore Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss, wrote this children's book in 1953 after he took a tour of Japan. The tour was an eye-opening and heart-softening event for Geisel. You see, during World War II, Geisel had used his creative gifts in the service of his country. He supported the fight against the Axis powers by creating cartoons that were used in newspapers to rally Americans to the Allied cause. But, unfortunately, his creative work, his creative energies, went beyond the cause of patriotism. His cartoons, many of them, not all of them, many of them presented Japanese people as less than human, stoking anti-Japanese sentiment in the U.S. at a time when Japanese Americans were already under fire were already being forced to evacuate their homes and go live in camps. Can you imagine the government coming to your house and because of where you're from, saying to you, hey, you can't live in your house anymore. You have to go live in this camp now. Geisel's cartoons fueled the fires of racial resentment in our country in the 1940s. So... Fast forward to 1953, when he visited Japan after the war, and he began to meet and talk with survivors of the atomic bombs that had dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He experienced a fundamental change of heart and mind. Something changed inside of him. He began to see the Japanese people as people. And then we returned to America, he apologized in the best way he knew how by writing the children's book, Horton Hears a Who. Geisel may not have been a Christian, though he had a Lutheran background. It's hard to tell where he was with his faith. But when he saw the suffering of the Japanese people after the war, he came face to face with the Christian idea, the biblical idea, that every single life has value, period. He couldn't undraw his racist cartoons, but he could draw up and write a book that spread the message of human dignity far and wide. A person's a person, no matter how small. The movie's really funny, by the way. You should look it up. Jim Carrey, Steve Carell. A person's a person, no matter how small. This brings us to Genesis 1. We've been in Genesis 1 for like two months. Amen? Amen. It's the first chapter of the Bible. Arguably the most important chapter of the Bible. So we're lingering in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we've seen that on the sixth day of creation, God creates man, Adam, which means mankind. He creates Adam in his own image. Interestingly, it says he created man in his own image and not according to its kind like everything else. There's something fundamentally different between Adam, man, 
and everything else. I've said that this idea of being created in the image of God after the likeness of God means most fundamentally that we were created to rule the earth on God's behalf and created to relate to him. Let me read the text for us just to get our bearings. This is, again, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It should be a fairly familiar text for us by now. But let me read it again before we go any further. Genesis 1, 26. It should be on the first or second page of your Bible. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this text says clearly that man was made to exercise dominion over the animals and to multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers. It says in verse 28 that man is supposed to subdue the earth. This is often called, these verses are often called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, which we're going to dive into uh, with some depth next week. But this week, I want us to drill down deeper into some implications of being made in the image of God, or the Imago Dei, the image of God. God created us to display His righteous rule over the earth, to fill up the earth, cultivate the earth, The king of the universe created us to extend his kingdom as his royal sons and daughters. That's all true. That that was the sermon I preached a few weeks ago. I've said that the image of God is something we are, not just something we have. But what I haven't got too much into is some of the ways that that truth applies directly to our existence. In our everyday lives, our everyday lives, our our being image bearers in this world. So what I want to do this morning is draw out several implications from this beautiful truth. This is going to be more or less a topical sermon on a text, the text here in 26 through 28, specifically verse 27. And the main point I want to make, based on what I've already said previously about the image of God, being that we are rulers in the world, We're royalty. God made us to rule the world for him. My main point this morning is simple. Because we're royalty, we have dignity. Because we're kings and queens, we're automatically valuable. A king or queen is robed with dignity simply because they're royalty. They don't earn it or work for it. They just have it. So, as image bearers of God... Because we're royalty, we have dignity. That's the main point of today. But I want to drive even deeper into that. That's pretty broad and still pretty abstract. You're like, okay, I get that, John. Most of you probably already agree with that. You're like, John, you're literally preaching to the choir. What does it mean 
that you have inherent dignity as an image bearer of God. I want to give you three things. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at three things that I think necessarily follow from this truth of us being made in the image of God. Number one, number one, this means us being made in the image of God means that our identity starts with God, not with ourself. Our identity starts with God, not with ourself. Being made in the image of God grounds and establishes who I am and who you are. The language God uses here to describe us helps us understand us. Image means we're not ultimate. Image means that we reflect something else. We're not gods, but are the image of God. But though we may not be gods, we're not nothing. We're not made in the image of nature. We're not made in our own image. We're not even made in the image of our parents. We're made in the image of God. The text is so emphatic on that point, it says it like at least three times. We're made after the image of God or the likeness of God. Only one thing in this vast universe is in God's image, and it's you. You. You bear the image of a glorious God. Nothing else does. Of course, we can see the glory of God in creation, but creation doesn't bear the image of God. You as a human, as a man or a woman, show something of the value and worth and glory of Almighty God. You're not a God because you're image. Remember, image. But you're made after the image of Almighty God. This means, as I said, that our identity must start with God. This means that we're meant to find ourselves in the context of relationship with someone else, namely God. This relational identity is founded on the truth that we were made to reflect and know God. Our culture, of course, thinks this idea is stupid. Our culture... D- diminishes this idea. Sorry, we're not supposed to use that word. Um, forgive me, Elisha. Our culture says the exact opposite. Our culture says that your identity, the way you formulate who you are, starts with you. It says we need to look within ourselves to find ourselves. That we need to break away from any and all external authority, such as a religion or a God who names you, and name yourself. Declare who you are. Find out who you are. Any external authority is only seen as a hindrance to you becoming who you're supposed to be. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, I recommend you dig into Carl Truman's new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He gives this fascinating, if you're into history and philosophy, survey of where we've come from in the Western tradition over the last two or three hundred years, how we got to where we are, what ideas have shaped us. As R.C. Sproul always said, ideas have consequences. We got to where we are today in 2021 because of a long history of ideas, and Truman argues 
For example, that Jean-Jacques Rousseau and others a couple hundred years ago psychologized our identity. And then Sigmund Freud sexualized our identity. And when we put all that together and add in some Karl Marx, we end up with an identity that is politicized. So if you ever wonder why sexuality is politicized, there are reasons why that's happening today. Philosophical, historical reasons how we got here. They explain how we got here. But the fundamental failure of all these worldviews is that they lead to despair and not liberation. Because their reference point, their starting point is self, not God. If we don't start our definition of ourselves with God, then we'll end up in a world where we think and act and feel like animals. Pursuing our animal instincts. Or worse, we'll just see ourselves as mere machines with no intrinsic meaning or value, with no stabilizing reference point to orient our lives and give meaning and beauty and purpose to our lives, we'll also not have any reason to treat other people with kindness because they're no better or worse than us. They're just other animals or other machines. So identity formation formation has to start with God or end up with madness and emptiness and chaos. It'll end up with what you see in modern-day America today, where we truly are becoming and have become godless. Secular means godless. Theologian Christopher Watkins says it this way. He says, if we're thinking biblically, we recognize that our identity and worth are defined at the deepest level by being in the image of God, and that this means I am always, already in relationship with one who is other than me. I realize, he says, that in order to find myself, I do not need to look inside myself to my thoughts or feelings, but I need to look outside myself to the God whose image I am, end quote. This is a glorious and freeing truth. I hope this is not just some philosophical idea that you're like, John, why are you even talking about this? This idea has earth-shattering implications to the way you live everyday life, to the way that you wake up tomorrow and go to work. This glorious truth means that your worth is based in not what you do or what you possess, but in who God has made you to be. It means that we're not defined by who we vote for, the color of our skin, the amount of money we have, the number of books we've read, how awesome we are at sports or video games or our job, how many kids we have, where we went to school, how jacked up our childhood might have been, what state we're from, what country we're from, what team we root for. This means, this truth means that we aren't defined by any evil that we've done or evil that's been done to us. This truth means that our identity starts with God, period. God made us and therefore we have a royal dignity that can't be lost or conferred. It's yours by default. God has made you in his image. He's put his image indelibly on you so that you don't have to find yourself. You know who you are. You're an image bearer. You don't have to discover you who you are. You've already been told who you are. Yes, of course, we're sinners, but we're also image bearers of God. 
crowned with glory and honor, as Emil read from Psalm 8. We've been given a mission to oversee God's kingdom on the earth, and nothing or no one can ever take that away. You're not trash. You're not garbage. You're not an accident. You're not an accident of nature. Yes, original sin tells us that we're not as good as we think we are, but the Imago Dei tells us we're not as bad as we think we are. Both are true. Corrupted by sin and made in the image of God. The one confronts our pride. The other confronts our self-pity and loathing. Our, Our misplaced shame. Our feelings, tell me if I'm alone here, are regular paralyzing feelings of inferiority. Just me. That you've got to prove yourself. You've got to, you've got to do this and have this and build this big church and do whatever. And then you'll be something. That's wrong. You already are something. You're in the image of God. God made you. God literally made you to reflect God. If your identity formation doesn't start there, it's going to end up empty. Our identity identity must start with God or we'll never find our identity. We'll always be searching. We'll always be stressing. We'll always be consumed with measuring up and fitting in will have a void at the core of who we are if we don't understand who God says we are. Of course, we're all beautifully different, but we're also fundamentally the same. Made in the image of God, meaning our identity starts with God. That's number one. So we're we have a, a dignity because we're royalty, meaning our identity starts with a Godward bent. Secondly, this means if this is true, if everything I just said is true, then it naturally leads to a second implication, namely that every human is equally valuable with no qualification. Equally valuable, no qualification. If every human has an identity, identity established by God, then every human is equally valuable. If all people are royalty, then all people matter. There's no such thing as a meaningless life. All lives matter because all lives are made in the image of God. A person's dignity isn't dependent on their performance or possessions. Our value isn't determined by some outside criteria or whether or not we have certain desirable qualities. And I stress this because this is how we think. Usually quietly, not very vocally. But we often consider that a person's life is valuable or not, that our life is valuable or not, if they're rich or powerful or an influencer, or famous, or spiritual, or loving, 
or generous or beautiful and attractive or young or creative or from this nation or that nation or polite or efficient or rational or poor or whatever. But when we grade the value of another person using worldly and subjective measurements, we're denying one of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. Again, the image of God means that every person is inherently valuable, period, full stop. Everyone is inherently the same. Is there an amen in the room this morning? Anybody agree with that? Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this is what the Bible says. The biblical truth, this biblical truth means that the basis for, becomes, excuse me, becomes the basis for the universal equality of all people. Did you know that human rights are rooted in the Christian worldview? Not your political science professor (laughs) or textbook. Human rights are rooted in the Imago Dei. The writers of the Declaration of Independence were teaching at least one aspect of biblical anthropology when they wrote, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights writes that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now the trouble is that while we nod in agreement and our hearts fill with patriotic pride in our country's framing documents, we don't apply this truth evenly or consistently. Even the founding fathers didn't, as many of them were slave owners, and believed that only men who owned property had the right to vote. It's one thing to hold an idea and to nod in agreement. It's another to let that idea sink down and infiltrate how you think about everything, how you feel about everything, and how you act in the world. This idea, again, is easy easy to agree with. It's harder to practice. So what about us? Where might we have some blind spots? What ways are we applying this truth inconsistently in our lives? I'm going to give you a whole bunch of examples. And I don't think all of them apply to all of you. You'll have to think and discern. I pray the Spirit might help you see some areas where you are looking at people in an unbiblical way. So, for example, why do we... I'm using the generic we, okay? Why do we sneer at the panhandler on the street corner and quickly assume the worst about them? Why do we see disabled children in public and quietly thank God that our children aren't like them? As if our children are more valuable because they have legs that work or a mind that works. Why do we think that gay or transgendered people are less human or more evil than we are? Why do we look at people coming over from the Middle East with suspicion Why do we fail to give them the benefit of the doubt? Why do we ignore the plight of the poor 
while we consume more and more stuff we don't need? Why do we secretly wish immigrants and refugees would stop coming into our country? Why do many people move their aging parents into assisted living facilities and all but forget them? Why do we see people from other religions as enemies rather than as potential friends? Why do we despise our supervisors at work and constantly grumble against them and then boast over those who are below us as if we're better than them? Why do we find any excuse possible to not pay our employees a fair wage? Why might we assume that people in the prison system are worse, inherently worse than we are? Why do we assume that an unborn child is expendable? Why do some consider killing child in the womb if they have Down syndrome or some other genetic or physical malady? Why is that even a conversation? And I'm not just talking about out there, by the way. I'm talking to the household of God. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Why do we tear up when we hear about the sad state of the foster care system and want the government to get their act together or the, the plight of orphans around the world but never stop and passionately ask God how we can help Why do we assume that people who aren't in our favorite political party are not as smart, not as wise, or not as Christian as we are? Why do we think that people who disagree with our politics are our enemies rather than our neighbors? The reason behind all of this, and again, I'm not saying that this is what we all do all the time. I'm saying that some of this is in all of our hearts. I know it's in mine, okay? I know some of this is in my heart in some way, at some time, at some point. Why? Because we assume that people who are different than us are somehow inherently less than us. We assume that to be a valuable human being... People must look like us, think like us, live like us. The problem with all of this is that God made people in His image, not in ours. We are not the standard of dignity or value. God is. Yes, there are real political and moral and doctrinal differences between People, that's not the point. My point is simple. The point is that all these kinds of people I just listed are just as valuable as you and your children and your grandchildren and should be treated as such. That's the point. 
if every person bears God's image, if that's true, then every person is royalty and inherently dignified. What if Christians were known for the way we celebrated people? Differences notwithstanding, we have clear differences. Instead of the way we tear down people. What if we were marked like Jesus by truth and grace? All lives matter because all lives are made in the image of God. A person's a person no matter how small. And all Dr. Seuss meant there is that a person is a person without qualification. Our identity starts with God. Every person is equally valuable. Number three, the third and final implication of our royal dignity is that both men and women are equal in the sight of God. Men and women are both made in the image of God. Verse 27 says this plainly, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. This verse makes it clear that God made one humanity in two genders, male and female. God didn't make two humanities who are independently in the image of God. He made a united humanity with two genders who are together in God's image. Men and women have an equally royal status and thus an equal dignity. There are so many ways I could go with this, so many directions. I'll just pick one or two. One of the implications of this our engenderedness, that we have a gender, we have a maleness or a femaleness that is, excuse me, assigned, not chosen. One of the implications of this is that our sexuality isn't an accident of nature, but rather a gift from God. God made you female, or He made you male. This means that we don't have to be ashamed of our sexuality. You may think that you're too sexual when you may not actually be sexual enough. What I mean is that God gave us bodies designed to experience sexual pleasure. When we start to move out of the shame of our sexual sin, there's so much more about our sexuality that awaits us. Sex is not bad. No one wants to amen that because that would just be weird. But it's true. God gave us sexuality. Meaning that our sexuality is a good and glorious gift from God for, as we'll learn in chapter 2, for marriage. Okay, that's the key qualification. I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, John, that's dangerous territory. We're not supposed to just be sleeping with anyone. No, you're not. Absolutely not. But in marriage, our sexuality is supposed to blossom and flourish and be celebrated. Our sexuality, I'm saying this because, was it two weeks ago? Um, when I spoke on the be fruitful and multiply part. 
the impression could become that we have the Catholic view or the very old school traditional Christian view that sex is only for kids. Not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Our sexuality isn't only for procreation, though as we see right clearly in this text, it is a fundamental and foundational purpose of it. Our sexuality, though, is also a way in which we bear the image of God. And therefore, it should be celebrated. One of the reasons this conversation is so hard and so necessary for us today is because the plague of pornography has twisted the way that we see sexuality, the way that we think, the way that we envision sexuality. So using Ray Ortland's book, I've talked to many of you about this book. He just wrote a book called The Death of Porn. Using his book as a guide, let me directly speak to the men for a moment. Ladies, listen in. But men, when you look at porn, please hear me carefully. You're assaulting the image of God. In women. You're abusing and degrading what God has crowned with glory and honor. Man, I wish someone would have told me this when I was 16, 18, 22, 24. It's not an innocent act that affects no one. It's not that. I agree with Ortland. He says you're actually standing with Satan against God. Here's how he says it. He says, quote, Porn is Satan recruiting us to degrade a woman into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery. Satan hates women. It was a woman, remember, who brought Jesus into the world, dooming dooming Satan's evil kingdom forever. Porn is Satan, yes, Satan assaulting women, denying their glory, dragging them down because they remind him every day of the true king he hates and fears. End quote. There's more going on with pornography than you might think. A woman's sexuality is a sacred gift from God. It's so sacred that Jesus Jesus values the sacredness of a woman's sexuality so much that he says that we can violate them in our hearts without ever using our hands. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus is saying that even if you're not literally touching, you're really taking. The look is morally equivalent to the act. Of course, this applies to men and women. But Jesus' understanding of the sacredness of sexuality is not some idea he just came up with. Jesus knew the Bible. He's rooting that idea in the law of God about adultery and in this creation mandate that both male and female were created in the image of God and are therefore both inherently sacred. By the way, verse 27, when it says male and female were uh, created in the image of God there, at the end of verse 27, no one was talking like this in the ancient Near Near East. There was no culture talking like this. 
This was a surprising claim then, and it is still surprising to many now. It's God clearly saying that women deserve the same kind of respect as men because she's just as much in the image of God as a man. This is a bold claim in an abusive world, in a world where men think they can just take what they want from women as if women owe it to them, as if women are less than them. What if the Me Too movement is not just a bunch of liberals? What if it's actually more biblical than you think? That championing the sacredness of a woman's sexuality is what Jesus did, rooting it in the law of God, the creative intention of God. Women don't exist for men. Women exist for God. They bear his image no less than men. So the Bible celebrates the equality of women. Genesis 1.27, you might notice in your translation, it, it might set that verse kind of in the middle, or it might indent it. It's because it's poetry in Hebrew. This is the first verse of poetry in the Bible. Moses writes it as poetry to capture God's joy over creating men and women. When Adam, over in chapter 2, verse 23, when Adam first sees Eve, he also responds with poetry. Then the man said, 2.23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam is responding to the gift of the woman with joy. The first human words in the Bible are poetry, words of joy and celebration. Adam welcomes her with relief at last identifies her with her personally, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's not threatened by her equality. He's thrilled by it. She has his heart from the moment he sees her. She's not property or a prize of war or even the mother of his children yet. And his response is joy and delight. Why? Why? Because in and of herself, as a woman, she is to be delighted in and prized and celebrated. She is to be honored with dignity and embraced with care. She's what he is, an image bearer of Almighty God. This bedrock teaching, this bedrock biblical teaching is why pornography is the abuse of women, why lustful thoughts and sexual fantasies are a violation of the sacredness of a woman's sexuality. The Bible makes it clear that women should be respected as glorious image bearers of God, not consumed and degraded as objects of our lust. The Bible also makes it clear that women in general should be celebrated, not tolerated. Ironically or providentially, there was an article that came out this week on DesiringGod.org titled, Honor Women Like Our Lord Does. And I'm typing this sermon up, and I see this on my Twitter feed, and I'm like, hmm. I usually don't read articles. I'm in the middle of sermon prep. But I read this one because it was literally on what I was writing on at the moment. So here's what Pastor Josh Manley says. I'll just read a bit of it. It's worth quoting at length. He says, I wonder if some sisters today feel that their churches debate their proper callings more than they delight in them as one of God's best gifts. 
The conversations about what women can and cannot do in the context of the church are poignant in this particular moment. Can they preach, teach, or lead a co-ed Bible study? These conversations matter because the scriptures speak to them. Yet the church's public discourse about women when healthy is marked most of all by celebrations of women as faithful saints. And then he does, he does, does this long kind of uh, catalog of faithful women in scripture and faithful women in history. And he says this, of course, we don't just praise the Christian sisters whom we know by name. There are countless names we have not yet heard whom we will honor in the age to come. They are steadfast mothers and wives who pray down heaven while giving themselves to their family from dawn to dusk and even through the darkest nights. They are single women who joyfully content themselves in God while the world constantly tempts them to believe their faith is folly. He says, my own experience living overseas, he's in the UAE in Dubai, testifies to the truth that far more young unmarried women cross oceans and borders for the sake of the gospel than men. And then he concludes this way. God, he says, God presented the first woman to the first man as a gift. And he continues giving women as blessings to his church today. End quote. So, ladies of Preston Highlands Baptist Church, please hear me say, you are loved. You are cherished. You are prized. You're precious. You're needed. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're not on the sidelines. You're in the game. You have wisdom and skills and energy and ideas and zeal that our church and the world desperately needs. You're seen and loved by us. And you're seen and loved by your Father in heaven. Ladies, Preston Highlands ladies, keep up the good work. Your reward will be great. Keep up the good work. And may God continue to raise up women in our church who reflect His glory, both here and among the nations. It's time to land the plane. And all God's people said, Amen. So we've seen that our identity starts with God. We've seen that every person is equally valuable and that both men and women are equally valuable in the sight of God. This, in my opinion, is one of the most precious and beautiful and important doctrines in the Bible. But it can also be one of the most discouraging. If you've listened carefully, you may be thinking, John, um, a lot of what you talked about is, is, is off in my heart and mind, is off in my life. I might give assent to these doctrines and these ideas and these beliefs, but, but the way I've, I've applied them and cherished them, celebrated them, hasn't been consistent. We might all agree that our identity starts with God, that all lives matter, that both men and women are equally valuable to God, but in our hearts we don't even come close to living this out. We know the thoughts we've had about people different than us. We know how we've used people to promote ourselves. We know how we've abused women through pornography. Uh, pornography. We know how we're trying to build our identity on the sand of self rather than the rock of God. We know 
we know how we've thought and felt and acted regarding the value of other people. And it leaves us discouraged. I don't know, it leaves me discouraged. You know that long list of different kinds of people in the world I I did earlier? You know where all that came from? My own sinful heart. Try to think of all the ways that I've minimized the value of another human being. That was a lot, and I probably could have kept going. Maybe you only had one or two on the list. Praise the Lord. But here's what I also know. Is that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. You see that Colossians, Paul in Colossians 1 verse 15 says that Jesus Christ is the image of God. That in Jesus Christ, God perfectly reveals what being a human means. Did Jesus ever undervalue anyone? Did he ever mistreat? Did did he ever tear down? Did he ever think that he was better? No, he was sinless in every way, in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions. He is the image of the invisible God. And then as the perfect man, he was wrongly accused and gladly went to a horrible death on a cross so that, as Colossians 1 goes on to say, so that those of us who've offended God by our diminishing the value of other people, those of of us who have offended the glory of God in humanity, can by the blood of Jesus' cross be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. Jesus truly imaged God in every way so that we could one day live with God and not be judged by God. He perfectly found his identity in God. He perfectly saw all people as inherently valuable. He perfectly honored women. Isn't it interesting that the first people to see him alive after his death were women? He perfectly imaged God. In a sense, then, Jesus is the only normal human to ever live. The only man to ever image God without the stain of sin or self. Jesus' life is what fully imaging God looks like. His life is our example and our goal. We're saved, Romans 8 says, we're saved to literally be conformed to His image. So what is God's will for your life? That you start thinking and feeling and acting and talking like Jesus. College students, that's what God wants for your life. Solve the mystery. You feel better? Be like Jesus, the perfect human. That's the point. But again, the trouble is we know we fall so short. In the quietness of our thoughts and the darkness of our hearts, we assume that we are the measure of humanity and that we best reflect the glory of God, that everyone else who disagrees with us or is different than us is inferior than us. And so Jesus had to die for our pride. Jesus had to die for our idolatry. Jesus had to die to satisfy the wrath of God 
that burns hot against his image bearers who blaspheme his image daily, constantly. Jesus allowed himself to be perfectly, excuse me, falsely accused and unjustly condemned to death. An agonizing death that touched the deepest part of his humanity with searing pain. A death we're going to remember through the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. A death that didn't just show us how amazing he was, but a death that atoned for our sin. A death that can wash away all of our filth and all of our pride and all of our haughtiness and all of our sexism. A death that can wash away sin and make us righteous. Jesus suffered so that we could be saved. He took our sins and gives us his perfection when we trust in him and turn away from our sins. So as we move to the Lord's Supper, we remember the cross of Jesus Christ because without the perfect image bearer of God, Jesus Christ, hanging naked and shameful on a cross, we have no hope to ever become who we were made to be. We'll continue to flounder as we try to find our identity in ourselves and tear people down who are different than us and assume that men are better than women or, or women, that are be- women are better than men or whatever it is, we'll continue to flounder until we look at the cross and we remember that Christ paid an incredibly high price for all of the ways we've diminished the image of God and people God made. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we prepare to move towards the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. Spend a few moments thinking about what's been said, asking the Lord to reveal sin in your heart, ways that you are not thinking God's thoughts after Him, things you may have done to offend God, ways you may have intentionally or unintentionally hurt people made in the image of God. Ask God to bring these things to mind. Ask for His forgiveness. Look to the cross. Receive His forgiveness. Rest in the cross. Prepare your heart for the Lord's Supper.